It's the Morgan Evans More or Less Pickleball podcast coming at you in three, two, one, boom. My guest today is a man of many talents, player, coach, student of life, and now author to the wildly popular new book, Pickleball and the Art of Living. I really don't know where this train is going to take us, people, so just hang on tight for part one of my interview with Mr. Mike Brennan. Mike, how you doing, mate? Oh, you know, just me and technology, the usual odd couple. <laughs> well, you can't be good at everything. Well, I'm definitely not good at this. So I'm thankful I have a wife and my kids even call in when, when I'm in uh, desperate need. I'd say you're a, an analog man in a digital world then, huh? <laughs> that's, that's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's new? What's happening in your world? Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of why you're here, what's happening? Actually, it's just going great. The book's doing better than I had hoped. Um, audiobook came out today and, you know, living a pretty good life. Got one one little setback about uh, 10 days ago. I got hit in the eye directly with a very hard shot. So I've been on pretty much non-physical activity and bed rest, and I'm supposed to be that way for another 10 days because the uh, tore up my iris and so my pupil's wide open. Oh, so, no. I know you probably wear glasses all the time from, I remember watching you, but uh, man, I, I definitely learned my lesson. Are you going to be someone who now will wear a, a patch around the court? Cause you know, your cool factor will go up tenfold. Oh. As soon as you do that, you get that and you get the parrot suddenly doors just open. <laughs> if I was any cooler, I don't, I, I just would feel bad for everybody else. I guess it, <laughs> you know, Fair enough. Yeah. but no, I, yeah, I just, uh, I definitely gonna have to wear protective lenses for sure. I, I said, don't ever get hit there again or else you're, you're done for. So, uh, I'm definitely going to do that. So hopefully we'll, they'll find some way to get my vision back too. But, uh, you know, I'm getting around. Okay. Other than that, just a little bump in the highway and life is really great. How about you? Mm. Yeah. Can't complain. Busy, a lot of work teaching. Yeah. Since I stopped playing so many tournaments, I've been teaching a lot more and I've really been enjoying it. Good. But it's gotten to a point where yeah, I could do with a bit of a break. But as they say, work is like old age. It's, it's the worst thing in the world except for the alternative. There you go. <laughs> and I've been feeling the same way too. I've had, since the book came out, I've had so many people just word of mouth. It's hard to take care of everybody that wants to be with you mm. for the lessons, you know, but uh, it sure is fun. It sure is rewarding in that. Good. Excellent. That's why we do it. So tell me, what inspired you to write this book and why pickleball? There's a lot of sports out there. I'm sure you're no stranger to a few of them. So yeah, tell me. Yeah, I originally wrote this book when my wife and I were one of those lucky people stuck on a cruise ship when the pandemic broke out. We're off the uh, mm. coast of Australia on the way to Fiji. And on a, on a dream vacation, which stopped being dreamlike pretty quickly because all of a sudden we were confined and nobody, no country would let us in. Uh, and we zigzagged across the Pacific for quite a while, for over 20 days. And uh, finally, blew an engine. That's the only reason that Hawaii let us off over protests and we were able to get back home. But so I'm sitting there on the boat and kind of not much to do. And so I started writing. It's not uh, being out there on the ocean was a good place to be alone. And I wrote the entire book relatively quickly and it had almost nothing to do with pickleball. It was just a throwaway paragraph using it as a uh, illustrative point. When I got home, I forwarded the manuscript to a couple of my friends in the book business, and they both independently of each other said, oh, we love your writing. It's funny. It's wise. But no one's ever going to read it because you're not famous. And the way 
the book business works these days is you have to be famous first and write a book. You can't write a book and do it the old fashioned way. Mm-hmm. So uh, they said, hey, what about that pickleball thing that you were writing about? That could be your your platform since you're so thoroughly unfamous and uh, a social media troglodyte. I hear you're, you're pretty famous in your family. Almost everyone knows you. Well, <laughs> I've been excluded from certain gatherings, but no, I, I do pretty well in that uh, demographic, yeah. <laughs> I get scared if I walk into a room and a bunch of my family there and there's a handful of friends, anything more than about eight people, I just assume it's an intervention. And, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I get scared and I run away and they say, no, 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 just come come back. We're just, we're just hanging out. Oh, oh great. Okay, so I'd, arguably, you know, if COVID didn't hit, then we wouldn't have this book to read. The, the universe works in mysterious ways. Uh, Very mysterious. I, I think sure. I definitely would have, I would, you know, being noble <laughs> like I am, I definitely would have traded my notoriety as an author for the world to be healthy and happy. But <laughs> that's just the kind of guy I am, you know? Ah, look, you're, you're just a kind, generous soul. It's very sweet of you. No doubt about <laughs> it. But uh, yeah, you know, so you never know. The good thing about, I guess, there's silver lining behind everything, because I tend to be optimistic, is that uh, no matter what life throws at you, there's always an opportunity there somewhere. So I think a lot of people have taken opportunities in different ways, whether it's reconnecting with the people they can be with or starting new projects or just taking a, you know, a little bit of a slower look at life when you're not quite as busy, uh, things start to appear on your horizon and it can be an opportunity for growth. Certainly. It's one of those things everyone is forced to stop and smell the roses and whether you knew they were there or not, relationships change, your life changes, you've got much more time on your hand or you've got more time at home. And suddenly you, you see things in a different light. And uh, what stems from there is anyone's guess. But I think for a lot of people out there, they're, they're getting a second lease on life, which, you know, yeah. if, if, if I was to look at pickleball in a more holistic kind of fashion, it, that's really what it is for so many people out there. Oh, yeah. Every day that you don't play, once you get into this thing, is you, you feel a little bit empty. You just got to get out there and, and more than anything else, just reconnect with your buddies and just uh, have some laughs. I mean, it's fantastic. I think, one of, again, the other silver lining to this thing is as we begin to crawl out of our caves and live our lives again, you can't help but be more grateful. I mean, I, I was out the other evening at an outdoor patio with a buddy of mine I hadn't seen for a while, and he brought his copy of the book and he highlighted it and dog-eared it and wanted to talk about different things. And it was just great just being out in the world with a, with an actual waitress we could talk to and people with their dogs and the sun shining. And it's good to be out again. So hope we get more of that. Definitely. We're all having our fingers crossed. So tell me, for me, and my, this is just my perspective, but it would seem that the American rat race generally inspires people to work until they can't work anymore and then hope to live long enough to enjoy the fruits of their labors. You retired pretty young, I think the age of 40, I hear. That's correct. Talk to me about why that happened, how you managed to pull it off. Well, a lot of it was luck. A lot of it was also never having had anything. I didn't have this huge goal where I had to have millions of dollars to stop working. I managed to live quite well with a pickleball paddle, a good book, and some good friends. So I've always been very very thrifty. Some might say cheap, like my wife who said that. I did get the email from her, actually. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) You know, she's pretty prolific when it comes to that. (laughs) No, I just, to be honest with you, I kind of struggled in the the work world for a while. I'd done okay. I definitely made ends meet, but uh, it wasn't satisfying. And then I formed my own company at 34 in a construction business. 
And six years later, it had grown to one of the biggest companies in its field. And several things happened where I kind of started checking in with myself and realizing that my kids who were nine and 11 at the time weren't going to see their dad much if I continued to do what I was doing. I had good guys that worked for me, which gave me that freedom and stepped off the diving board before I knew what I was doing and just did it. And I've never looked back and I've never regretted a moment. It's been an incredible blessing for me, Morgan. That's fantastic. I'm a firm believer of just bite off more than you can chew and then chew like crazy. Um, my, yeah, dad, my dad that's... told me that a long time ago. And, no, uh, you, you really would be good on a, on a cruise ship buffet. I think this is, this is down <laughs> your alley, bud. <laughs> yeah, you could just you know, put the buffet where away from the bar. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But no, it's been, uh, again, I, I truly realize how fortunate I am that, that things broke right for me. But I'm also kind of proud that I went ahead and did the unorthodox thing and stepped away from the potential to make a lot of money and traded it for a lot of experience and a lot of time with my loved ones. And again, Again, I never would have discovered so much, whether it was through travel or even, you know, things like pickleball may never have come up on my radar. So yeah, if you can live with less, I highly recommend it. For sure. For a long time, I was kind of wandering the earth, uh, traveling, teaching tennis and in different parts of Europe, North Africa, Asia, Middle East for a little while. And I kind of had a, a bit of a rule with myself that I didn't ever want to have more than about $3,000. I knew with $3,000 euros generally, I could get back home to Australia, get patched up and get back on the road. But any more than that, I might start acquiring all kinds of stuff that you know, ah. what, what do I really need it for? I didn't, I, I had no use for a big screen TV until eventually I really wanted a big screen TV and I moved to America. <laughs> but I felt, you know, I've never been more free in my life. And, you know, I kind of miss those days. Uh, I, yeah. have up, I have upwards of $4,000 now. And wow, I don't even know what to do with that extra thousand. You could buy probably, I think you could buy 58 Pickleball and the Art of Living copies and be really, really happy with that. That would probably make okay. all the difference for you. Right. Well, I'll put that on the list. Shameless plug. Shameless uh, plug. Don't worry. There'll be plenty of time for the plug. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. It is a fantastic read. Oh, thanks. For me, yeah. I, I, I like writing as well. And I often write not because I'm trying to communicate a point or illustrate anything, but I do it to actually kind of find out what I think about something. I find it's kind of therapy and I, I, I work through my thoughts by putting it down on paper and then... You know, if I read it again, I think, oh, that's probably something to that. I'll put it somewhere. Writing this book must have been a real journey, even though you were on a relatively stationary cruise ship. What did you learn from writing this book? You know, just the points that you brought up, Morgan, are, are excellent. I've, I've found that a lot of times, you know, writing things down is the, was one of the most clarifying things you can do. Uh, in business, I was constantly writing down plans. There was actually, a, uh, I, I think I referenced this in the book, there was a study done by Harvard that they studied MBAs in this program, and they found that 3% or something like that of the students in the program actually were writing down their goals and had plans for the future. They checked back 10 years later, and that 3% had over 90% of the wealth generated by that class. Wow. It's, it's, and it's not just a way to grab money. It's, a, it's really a way to, when you write something down, you can't escape it. It's right mm. there. You can keep going back to it. And it's like, it's your conscience, in it, but in a good way. It's like yeah. it, it, uh, when, you, when you get your values down on paper, it does a lot for you. And I find the same thing too, even when I have a conversation with a good friend, you have all this stuff rattling around in your brain and you're distracted. But when you actually have to say out loud what your intentions are and what means the most to you or, or do it in writing, it brings clarity and it brings power. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I actually, it saved me from some fairly serious mental health problems I was having about six or seven years ago when I first arrived to America. You know, I was going through culture shock and for the first time ever, my brother was my boss. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen to this podcast, so um, Oof, it's not going <laughs> <it's laughs> to come back and bite me. But I was really struggling with my newfound place to live. And I knew I couldn't just pick up and leave. I had a visa, and that's great. And I knew I had to stick around for a couple of years. And I, I hadn't been in that situation for a long time. I could always just pick up and find a new country. But I've, I found myself every night waking up at around 1.30, 2 o'clock and never being able to get back to sleep. So after a month or more of getting two or three hours of sleep, my brain was just losing it. And one of the things I, I found was something called cognitive behavior therapy. And one of the little tricks it suggested was to, you know, before you go to bed, write down what you think might be weighing on your conscious, things you've got to do, things you've got to accomplish. That way, your unconscious or subconscious when you're sleeping isn't trying to remind you of them to let you know, remember, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to concern yourself with this. They're written down, you're not going to forget them, it's in place, and your brain can, can kind of relax, and it gives you a better night's sleep, and then it was a very quick kind of snowball effect to me regaining the power of speech and uh, not forgetting to wear pants in the pro shop. <laughs> that happened. And that, that, was, that was an awkward moment. Um, it's well, funny. as long as you were wearing something sassy underneath, it's all good. A classic pair of banana hammocks. Fantastic. So. I'm visualizing. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, in all seriousness, I'm very familiar with, with that cognitive behavior therapy. And I, I did used to teach psychology as well. I've been doing a version of what you've talked about forever. I found back, especially when I was working so hard and I was working night and day and, and it was tunnel vision and yeah, I could be a wreck. I could be, you know, I know how you felt. You could be so exhausted, but still not sleep. Mm. And I found that you just do that brain dump. You just dump all that information out onto a sheet of paper and mm. you know, it's going to be there in the morning. So you don't have to all night long be trying to make sure it's still in the corral. Yeah. So uh, that's brilliant. I'm glad you found that, buddy. That's awesome incredibly powerful it changed everything i mean that that getting over the hump and realizing what were the real issues and therefore finding pickleball i knew i had to be in a different business and mm. uh and i quickly played a couple of games of pickleball and decided it was fantastic and pretty soon i was teaching it and you know life has been great ever since so yeah uh, that's such a good story yeah yeah can't complain now okay we're gonna hold it there just briefly for a quick word from our sponsor coach me pickleball Practice makes perfect, right? My name is Morgan Evans, and I have to tell you that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes progress. That's why we've created Coach Me Pickleball. At Coach Me Pickleball, you'll find an extensive and growing library of lessons on topics covering every aspect of pickleball for every level of player. For one small monthly fee, you'll get access to every video in our library with new content added every month. Check out coachmepickleball.com to sign up for a free seven-day membership. Ah, you'd be crazy not to sign up for that, let's be honest. <laughs> All right, so let's move on a little bit. We've got so much to talk about, Scott. I, like, know. I feel like a kid in a candy shop with you. Yeah, I do touch a lot of bases here. So if, <laughs> if you're into this kind of stuff and you want to live your best life, I mean, there's so many angles to approach it from. And mm. uh, so uh, I tried to hit a little bit of everything. So hopefully something piqued your interest. Oh, certainly. It was chapter six that talks about perspective. Yes. That's I've always interested me greatly. And you know, for my money, it's kind of the key to happiness. 
the one thing that no one can change but me is how I view the world or how I view an outcome of, for example, a, a pickleball match. You know, it's completely my choice, and therefore I'm really the only one that gets to decide if I succeeded or not. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on perspective and, and how it can relate to the average pickleball player toiling on the kitchen line. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think it's interesting. A lot of the stuff in the book is stuff that we, deep down, we already know in our souls to be true. If you were to say to someone, well, you know what, perspective is just so important and everyone would nod their head. But a lot of times we just get distracted. The busyness of life, the emotions jumping up in our reptile brains and taking us different places. So we lose these these real touchstones that keep us sane and content. And perspective is one of those. And it's no coincidence in that chapter you refer to, that's the chapter in which I interviewed different pickleball pros. And you were one of them whose story I related. And the, the theme of that, which was so interesting to me, was that every pro I talked to, I didn't specifically ask them about perspective, but it's I got it every single time. And I think that says a lot for the, the pros that I interviewed, which were you know, Steve Dawson, uh, Mark Renison, Irina Tereshenko, and the inimitable Morgan Evans. Every one of you guys had something to say about that. And not just your own perspective, but the perspective of the people you've met on the court. And like you brought up your older clients and how that you felt that this was part of your purpose to help them live healthier, more vibrant lives. And it's just this wonderful feedback loop when your perspective is in the right place. Everyone around you in your circle, they feel it. It's hard for them to lose it on the court when their partner has a smile and is forgiving and is supportive. Yeah, it means everything from dealing with cancer to dealing with questionable line calls. You know, it's, uh, it, it is everything. So when you have that, your perspective and gratitude go hand in hand. But you're about as bulletproof as you can be, I think. Yeah, no one can take that away. And I'm always in awe of anyone. And I think Steve Dawson's a great example of that. And for me, Cammy McGregor also uh, he just yeah. has this has this air about them that, you know, they are 10 foot tall and, and bulletproof. They're doing what they love to do. They've done more than most and they're living happy lives, content with where they are in, in life and in pickleball. And yeah. that's, you know, that's that's the huge win. I often refer back to a mountain climber metaphor where you get a lot of people that they really want to get to the top of Everest. And you get other people that just really love climbing. When those people that really just want to get to the top of Everest, when they finally do it, the letdown, the depression that they slip into soon after, you know, it's there's no turning back from it. Versus that climber that just, just loves the grind, loves the climb, enjoys their life out in the rocks. That's the winner in my book. You got it. And that climb is, is interesting. If you look at that, if you use that as a metaphor for your spiritual journey, living an enlightened, mindful life shouldn't be this dour, stoic, one foot in front of the other. I'm, I'm taking this seriously because these are such big issues type of a journey. It should be lighthearted. I mean, the Buddhist teachers who I've followed, they all have a twinkle in their eye. Everybody, you know, the Dalai Lama, who I was fortunate enough to, to see when I was in Australia and in Melbourne years ago at the World Parliament of Religions, mm. and uh, just different people that I've met who have that spark. And you know what? Cammy is one of them. It's funny. I play with her and, and Darren, and I know she's busy these days. Their, their net business is going great. And she's down here at La Costa, which I can see from my house. So I know she's, I can, I can feel her presence down there. But people like that, it's just wonderful. They may be really busy, but they always look you in the eye and have a kind word and a smile. And, you know, I just, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It, it's those people that, 
you know, despite what you might think uh, in terms of their time constraints, always take that time to make you feel like you're, you know, someone. You're not nobody and you're worth a quick chat or a smile or a beer. In the case of Cammy and, and Darren, um, I, I must owe them you know, <laughs> four or five slabs of beer by now. It's, it's unbelievable. Don't tell them that. Otherwise, oh, they, may, okay. they may collect and I'll lose most of that extra thousand I've got. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but just the, the nicest down-to-earth people. And it's, it's amazing when, when you meet those people and you realize and you, you find out what kind of success they've had in life. It's not always easy to put those two and two together. It's, we, we meet and we hear about incredible athletes, world number ones, people who have done astonishing things. And then, you know, as they say, never meet your heroes because yeah. I remember I, I, this was probably eight years ago, seven years ago maybe, I'm in one uh, tennis tournament, the, the BNP Paribas. I was lucky enough to meet both Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. Uh, you and, probably beat him too. You're just being modest. Yeah, no, I, I certainly didn't. <laughs> My only claim to fame with with Roger was the morning a friend of mine. Uh, he was a lefty, and Roger was training to play against. I think it was Rafa, and yeah. so my friend, who was a lefty, needed to get warmed up so he could warm up Roger. And uh, so I warmed him up, and we played a set, and I beat him. And then he went to go and warm up Roger. I was like, if I was just left-handed, oh, it so could have been close. me. Talk about a, a very tangential brush with greatness. I practiced with the guy who practiced with the guy who practiced with the roommate of Roger Federer. Well, there you go. Jeez. <laughs> That's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon right there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what I was referring to is uh, like on that day, I you know briefly met him and took a photo. And But later on that afternoon, I happened to be on one of the courts next to Rafa, who was practicing as well. And he was just change of ends and he started talking and we just kind of started talking. He learned my name. Anyway, the next day I saw them both <laughs> in the locker area. It wasn't weird, don't worry. But Rafa was Rafa actually remembered my name, and um, wow. I thought I thought that was the sweetest thing. And even though I'm a huge Roger Federer fan, if I was to want anyone to win another major, it's him. I yeah. love his style on the court. But when the next day I I asked for a photo with Roger and a friend of mine, he said to me, "All right, but make it quick," and then skipped off really quickly. And I, you know, came yeah. away with a different kind of perspective on him. Even though you know, I'm sure he's a very busy man. So is Rafa. So that, yeah. yeah, it's one of those things. You know, I, I think that's important too when you're in a, in a position at the pinnacle of your sport or business or, or whatever it is. When you, when you do make that time for people, you don't, it's just an amazing feeling because I think we all want to be seen, you know, for who we are. And, and a lot of times when we're playing pickleball, uh, when you're an oldster like me, you're playing with people and you look and you look at us and we're all really, you know, we've got our wrinkles and, and our crinkles and we're moving a little slower than we used to. But if you stop and you notice this is just a snapshot of these people and you start to talk to them, there's just amazing human beings roaming among us anonymously. I mean, there's mm. heart surgeons and people that have done wonderful things for humanity and just such kind souls. And, and to me, that's, again, one of the big pluses of pickleball is I find having played sports my whole life and different things, I've never just really interfaced with people like I do with pickleball. It just lends itself to conversations. And the things that you find out about people are just lovely. They're just fantastic. And, and I find myself in awe so many times how humble these people are who just want to play the game. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's good stuff. 
No, it's beautiful. I guess that's the kind of sort of secondary way that pickleball is such a, a social sport. I mean, obviously, when you're on the court with people, you're close enough to be able to have a good chat. But throughout the time you spend together, you may indeed learn enough about that person to realize this person's very similar to me or we have yeah. this in common. And now yeah. it's a, it can be a lifelong friendship. And I think we all realize that as people get older and older, especially men who are generally less social beings yeah. than, than women, if their wives pass before they do, you know, men don't often stick around too long. But something no. like something like pickleball is their their reprieve. They they get a chance to have that social interaction that very well can be the fuel that to a large extent keeps them alive longer than uh, if they didn't have that. Yeah, I think something interesting that, that actually nobody knows about, but this is this is your big scoop. I'm actually apparently addicted to writing pickleball books because I'm just finishing up a follow-up book. It's a very, very small book, but it's specifically about pickleball for seniors. Oh, great. Yeah. And in it, I share some profiles, like kind of what we're talking about. And when you're talking about how pickleball can really save, it literally can save your life. I, I do have a feature about one person I spoke to and she had some real heartache in her life. And as she told me, pickleball became my refuge. And now down at the, the club at Bobby Riggs, she's a fixture. She's always got a smile. She's always got, you know, every time I see her, I, I'm getting baked goods from her. And she's just a beautiful person. So it, it really can be a life-changing thing. And when you're unlucky enough to either be injured or away from it for a while, it, you really do miss it. You miss that connection because at the end of our days, nobody sits around in, at the, in their final stages and, and thinks about that extra thousand dollars that they have or uh, <laughs> you know, like you know, big guys like you. They think about purely about relationships. That's all. Mm. You know, who did I meet? Who did I affect in this life? Maybe this is a little deep for pickleball, but that's kind of what I do in the book. I try to mix humor and, and depth and hopefully make people realize that even when we're doing something as silly as knocking a plastic ball around, there's always an opportunity to connect and savor this, this precious life. Mm. There's obviously a lot of parallels that you, you draw between life and pickleball in the book. And you know it doesn't take long to search the depth of your imagination to find a lot of metaphors <laughs> that exist <laughs> between sport and life you know for me it's not well one of the one of my favorites has got to be you know it's not so much how you start it's how you finish yeah it's not so much if you win or lose it's how you play the game how you live your life i'm probably never going to have more than five thousand dollars but i'm i'm probably the happiest person i know hey <laughs> as charlie sheen my role model used to say winning <laughs> winning you're, you're you're winning absolutely absolutely <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> exactly i'll never forget i met this guy it was uh, i was living in the on the south coast of turkey in wow. an, area, an area called bildibi i was working at a at a nice resort it didn't seem like you know it was turkey inside the resort so every time i would go out it was always kind of a shock to the system but one of the guys i worked with he helped out in the recreation department his name was uh, emir i think he was one of those just unbelievably delightful happy people he was about 20 21 years old very young and he was just always just a delight to be around he didn't speak perfect english by any stretch of the imagination but anyway one day i go to work and he's he's not there anymore and the next day, he's not there again. And I finally asked, what, what happened to Amir? And I, I was told that his father has passed, and he was the oldest of 14 children. And it was left to him to be the, the sole breadwinner. And the rest of the kids were all, I think, under 13 or 14, weren't, weren't gainfully employed. But 
Within about, within about two days after that, he was back at work and the smile wasn't quite the same, but within mm -hmm. a week it was. And wow. it, it struck me as such a, a classic case of his perspective on where he was at in life and, and what, what had just happened. He, he was able to keep a smile on his face based on the fact that he was alive. The rest of his family was alive. He had a good job compared to many others. And he had enough so that each of those children and his mother could could eat at least a couple of meals a day. And he went on and he, he kept doing his job and they promoted him and he, he was just he kept being that nicest guy ever. I couldn't fathom it being in his shoes, but I, I can now. That's a beautiful story. I think the main reason I, I do have a little Aussie in me myself, I just love to travel. I've always, my, I grew up in a military family. I was in like 10 different schools by the time I went to high school. And I think that taught me some of the greatest lessons is to, you know, one, to be able to land on my feet every time I ended up somewhere new. And the other was to see people from different cultures and backgrounds. And it just, I mean, it's still to this day when I travel, it gives me such hope for humanity to see people that have so little and yet, it sounds corny, but they have so much more. Mm. Again, it's that perspective thing again. And when you don't have certain things, if you don't have that big screen TV or that, dare I say, $6,000 in the bank, aim high, Morgan, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know what, you, you gravitate to what you can control. And what you can control, again, is your perspective, your appreciation for family, uh, simple pleasures, just being with with people you love and breathing fresh air. I mean, it's 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 a fantastic thing. And I think I understand your culture shock coming to America at times. Where our culture, more than any other, I think, has lost its way a little bit in that race, in that race to to acquire. And I don't want to put myself out as holier than thou because you know I I was in that race uh, and I mm. raced hard. Having money gives you freedom, yeah, but it doesn't give you that spirit so uh mm. we can all learn a little bit so that's a beautiful story about that guy I've, i bet we could swap stories about people we've met around the world right yeah oh for sure it'd be fun we'll do it we'll do it in the next podcast for sure oh good <laughs> and that concludes part one i think we can all agree it's already been a hell of a ride we'll be finishing up this interview in a few weeks but until then if you're not already sick of listening to me i've got some good news for you i'm getting back in the commentary booth Realistically, I think it's a tent, but, uh, you know, the, the booth is the dream. I'll be on the mic at the upcoming APP tour event, the Delray Beach Pickleball Open, from the 18th to the 21st of March. This podcast was powered by Selkirk. Take it easy, folks. I'm Morgan Evans. And this has been More or Less Pickleball.